Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast from Raymond James, designed to help you plan, invest, and live smarter. Hi, listeners, and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Paige Linson. We're glad to have you with us. You can find this episode and more For What It's Worth on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today, we're talking about concentrated wealth. Now, at some point in our lives, most of us have heard the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket, and it's good advice. But for certain investors, it's not quite that simple. Concentrated equity positions can occur for a number of reasons, and there are many approaches available to address them. And as of course, with many aspects of financial planning, there's not going to be one strategy that's the right fit for everyone. Here to tell us more about the topic, I'm really pleased to be joined by Ben Creighton, Director of Structured Investments Product Management at Raymond James. Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Paige. We're talking about concentrated equity positions. We're going to be using that phrase a lot. What actually means concentrated in this sense? At what threshold would you consider a position concentrated? Yeah, uh, that's a nice, tough question with a lot of answers to start with, Paige. So I think if you had to throw a number out there, which I'm generally not a prescriptive numbers person, but if you wanted to think about something, I think 15% might be a fair guiding post to look at here. Now, I think concentration and size and what stage of your life inform some of these numbers and some of this thinking. So if I'm at 14.99% today and 15% tomorrow, but I'm still in my earnings and wealth accumulation stage, I'm not getting overly concerned and feeling the need to all of a sudden, because it's now 15%, make a bunch of drastic changes. Whereas, and you talked about don't put all your eggs in one basket, concentration can be a source of wealth creation. But if I've already gone through that cycle and now I'm in wealth preservation, this these types of numbers might be where you want to start thinking about it. But in addition to the numbers, I think it's important to know everybody's unique. And there's a little bit of a kind of sleep at night factor that I think is important. You know, what's causing you stress? If it's causing you stress, maybe that's when you should start thinking about this stuff. If you're asking the question, maybe you fall into that category. Exactly. And when you mentioned 15%, you're thinking 15% of investable assets? Investable assets. That's right. Yep. Got it. What are some of the common ways that this arises for investors? Yeah, I think the obvious one is you work for a company and you have various forms of equity compensation. So in purchase plans, stock options, things like that. And that can be executives, you know, which is what a lot of people think about, but it can also just be long-term employees. Um, and you can work for a good, high-quality company for many, many years and end up with a really large percentage of your investable assets in that employer stock. Uh, you also see a lot of this through inheritance, so these multi-generational positions. So you have a matriarch or patriarch of a family. They pass down positions to grandchildren you know, and things like that. That's oftentimes a source of you know, one large single stock position that might be held by an individual. Um, we see folks in the you know, private sector, they might sell their business and sell it to a publicly traded company, and some portion of that sale might be in the form of stock. And that might be a way where all of a sudden you go from a private ownership to a you know, publicly traded single stock position in your portfolio. And then more often than you think, we also see folks who just simply are true long-term buy and hold investors. And they bought good, high-quality businesses that have been great compounders. They've well outpaced the market. And so your diversified portfolio really lagged one really, really you know, well-timed stock 
you know, investment, and that becomes a really large portion of your portfolio. So you can get it a lot of different ways, but those are kind of the four kind of primary ones that we see. What are some of the risks associated with holding a concentrated position? Well, holding any position, even diversified, has market risk. So there's always market risk, but with a concentrated position, you're now exposing yourself to a larger degree of company-specific risk. We call that idiosyncratic risk. So that's the primary driver of risk that a concentrated single stock position might lie. And that could be underperformance of the market. That could be, you know, individual stocks just move a lot more than the broad market. Sometimes that's to the upside, but sometimes that's also to the downside. So that's really a large source of risk here. You also have potential liquidity risk. In some cases, you may not be able to sell that position because of corporate, you know, policies and restrictions. It also might be what we I like to call kind of tax inertia. If you have a really high capital gain in a stock and you want to sell it or you otherwise would have sold it if you didn't have that tax bill associated with the sale, you know, maybe you would have sold some of it to create some liquidity. So that can put some pressure on the rest of your portfolio if you kind of effectively create illiquidity because of taxes around this large single stock position. Um, you know, we see some folks who are overly reliant on the dividend yield of a single stock. If that's your funding lifestyle. And if a company cuts their dividend, their price is also probably going to go down, at least historically that, you know, the market would tell us that. So you're all of a sudden your income source is getting hit as well as your asset value is getting hit. What are some of the things that make managing these positions a little bit more complex? Yeah, there's there's a lot of differences when we think about positions that we have large positions in. So if you think about how we source them, if it's from a grandparent or if it's from my employer, I've typically got an opinion and a knowledge of that that is very different than a mutual fund or an ETF or any other investments I might hold. So that's one thing. The other is the tax ramifications, you know, they're always different and how you acquired it, if it's through outright purchases versus options. Um, there's some tax and estate planning nuance here and there's some efficiencies that you can utilize uh, with, you know, certain, you know, diversification strategies, which we'll get into a little bit later. So every case that I've worked on has been somewhat unique. Um, and there's been a lot of those cases over the years. So uh, that complexity is, um, you know, something that is really important to just be mindful of as you think through this. Let's talk about some of these strategies that can come into play. And again, none of these are always going to be the right fit for an investor, but we're going to talk through some of them that you see more frequently. Let's talk about some where the investor retains ownership of the shares. What's one of those strategies you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, so the first would be, you know, we call hedging, um, you know, and Think about hedging as a way to protect the value of your overall portfolio through tools. And those tools are generally in the form of options and other derivatives. So a put option is something that I can purchase and it can provide protection against a stock, a broad equity market, an ETF. You know, there's options that trade on lots of things. But if I hold a single stock, I can buy a put option on that stock and it can put protection on the downside if the stock goes below a certain value. Now, a put option doesn't prevent my stock from going down. So a put option costs money. There's premium associated with that purchase. And if my stock goes down in value, 
it will start to offset some of that downside risk. It's not going to prevent it, but it can offset it. Yeah. And I think just the term hedging is probably a, a phrase that most investors have heard, maybe in, even in this, the use case of companies hedging yep. large positions in addition to just individuals. What's another strategy that falls into this category of actually retaining ownership of the shares in question? Yeah, another one might be looking to you know, enhance or even create a cash flow stream off of a position. So if I have a company that pays a dividend, but I want to create more cash flow off of that position, or maybe I have a company that doesn't pay a dividend at all, and that's where a lot of my net worth is, maybe I'm trying to create a cash flow stream from that portfolio. Um, and so the opposite of what we just talked about, which is put options or the protection on the downside, might be selling upside. So I can sell a call option, which in the owner of that call option can purchase my stock at a predefined price. And so if the stock goes above that price, they're going to be in the money and they might execute that. But if I'm willing to let go of some shares or there's a price that I'm comfortable selling at in the future, if my stock's at 100 and I think in six months I'd be willing to sell at 110, I can sell that call option and create some cash flow off the position. And so it's a way to enhance or bring in some income. It, it caps your upside effectively. So just like the put option protects you on the downside and puts a floor in place, the call option is effectively going to cap that upside. Um, and one thing that we often see folks do, Paige, is rather than do both of these things in isolation or just do one or the other, they might combine them both. And so I'm going to sell my call option to bring in premium, and I'm going to buy my protection or my put option rather than paying that insurance premium out of pocket or that put premium out of pocket. So I'll sell some upside to fund the downside protection. And that's what we call a collar. Any other strategies that fall into this category of retaining ownership that you would want to tell us about? Yeah, I mean, the there's some folks who might consider you know, leveraging these assets. So, um, you know, obviously, leverage comes with risk, but leverage is also a tool. So you can borrow against a real estate you know, asset. You can also borrow against a single stock asset. And so you can borrow on margin and use those proceeds to invest in uh, other securities. Maybe uh, my advice might be diversified securities. Um, you, know, you can also use securities-based lending, and you can borrow against a stock position to invest in real estate or pay down other debt, things like that. So you have some ways to access and monetize that position without selling. So I still own those positions. Now, the risks of that are my stock goes down in value. I might be forced to sell. My loans could be called. So just like any other kind of source of borrowing, right, there's there's risk associated with that. Um, so that's one way to monetize without selling and retaining ownership. And then pairing all these things together, which we won't spend a lot of time on, but just for folks to be aware of, for certain positions that are, you know, a little bit larger, you can pair the collar with the loan. And so loans, you know, margin, if the stock goes down, I'm exposed to risk there. If I put protection around my position and I borrow, you can eliminate some of those, uh, you know, downside risks and put that put option in place. And you can package that together all in one particular transaction. So that's something for folks just to be aware of. It's called a variable prepaid forward. And I think you're making it really clear, but just to reiterate to our listeners, these strategies are not eliminating all the risks involved, but they're mitigating some of the ones that can come, especially with holding a more concentrated position. That's exactly right. Yep. Let's talk about some of the strategies that actually reduce the position. So the ones we've covered so far, you're retaining ownership of the shares. We're going to talk about ones now that you actually would be 
potentially divesting ownership in some ways. What's a strategy that falls into that category? Uh, so the first one would just be an outright sale. Um, if you are willing to sell stock, you can sell stock and very easily reduce some of that position. Now, the reason folks don't oftentimes just outright sell the positions is because taxes. Taxes is probably the biggest thing. You know, If you have a large capital gains bill associated with that sale, you might be hesitant to just go ahead and sell some of that position. Uh, you might also be restricted from doing that. Now, if you've got a bearish view on your large single stock, I think selling is probably the easiest thing to do. Um, and it probably makes the most sense. If you have some different views on this, this might be where we use some of these other tools. What are some of the other strategies that fall into this category of not retaining complete ownership of this whole position? So, you know, I talked about maybe some liquidity issues with an outright sale. If you're restricted from selling, a 10B51 plan is something that we can see executives use. So if they're in open windows when they're not, you know, exposed to any material non-public information, they can put plans in place for future selling. And there's a high degree of customization to that. It has to be done you know, under very specific sets of rules and circumstances and during certain particular time periods. But that's something where if in the general, you know, throughout the year, you've got a great degree of restrictions and blackout periods, and I'm not able to sell stock whenever I want, I can set a plan in place in the future uh, in order to do that, um, you know, through the 10B51 plan. So this is likely when our listeners are seeing headlines about really well-known CEOs and kind of public figures selling off large positions of their stock. It's likely that something like this is happening in the background, a, a plan put in place ahead of time that specifically allows them to reduce that concentrated position. That's exactly right. Uh, what's another strategy that could fall into this category? Um so there's some ways that you can reduce the position but bring a little bit of tax efficiency to that reduction. So we talked about why well, if you have a really high capital gain, you might not just want to outright sell. So one thing that's a little bit kind of counterintuitive is tax loss harvesting. So there are certain managers that can pair your position with a broader portfolio, and they'll actually seek to recognize ca capital losses and then use those to offset as you kind of slowly sell down the large single stock position that has large gains. So again, you don't you invest to make money. Um, you don't want to generate losses. But if I have a diversified portfolio with a large number of securities, chances are at any point in time, some of them are up and some of them are also down. So those ones that are negative and at losses, you can recognize those losses and use that to kind of more efficiently over time sell out of your position without as much tax drag. And then there's another solution similar to the variable prepaid forward that we talked about for certain larger positions. An equity exchange fund might be something to consider. Um, this is a tool that allows you to effectively fund your original investment into that private vehicle with a concentrated single stock position rather than cash. So I can, in a more tax deferred and efficient way, achieve diversification because I'm using my single stock position to fund my investment rather than you know a typical cash investment. What are the considerations for an investor who's looking through these strategies, but might also have a little bit of a philanthropic intention in mind. You know, they're not maybe just focused on the return and the t just the investment outcome, but are also looking at, yeah, personal tax efficiency, but also uh, maybe contributing to a cause that they care about. Yeah, this these types of positions for folks that have legacy goals and legacy planning in mind, 
can be very efficient from a tax perspective to use as a source of funding for those goals. So there are certain estate planning features and vehicles that you can use. This is an area I spend a little bit more of my time on some of the options and trading strategies. So I'm just dangerous enough here, but we've got uh, you know colleagues who are very well versed in some of those charitable strategies. But what I can tell you is if those are goals and you happen to have one of these highly appreciated single stock positions, you know, think that through and consider that as your source of funding for some of those charitable goals. Ben, you've shared so many great insights and thank you for walking us through these strategies. For our listeners, if they're hearing this and thinking that, you know what, I think this applies to me, I might need to start taking some first steps. What do you recommend to them? The first thing I would recommend in this, and hopefully uh, you've learned a lot here, but you also might have taken away that there's some complexity and some nuance to these situations. So given that, I think in these types of scenarios, if you find yourself with a concentrated position, seeking professional advice from financial and tax advisors, I think is the first and foremost thing to do. Uh, There's some... You know, documentation, there's some just organization around this that I think is helpful, getting a sense for what the overall percent of this position is in your investable assets. Sometimes that's harder than you think. You got things at multiple different custodians or you have to get documents from a stock plan administrator. So trying to go through the exercise of understanding what your overall picture looks like and what a position might represent of those investable assets. And then some of the tax you know, situation. So what is my cost basis? What are the various tax lots? Some of those types of details will help inform that conversation with that professional help. And so then you start thinking through goals and objectives and solutions that might make sense. But doing some of that prep work, I think, is going to be really helpful in the conversation. Ben Creighton, Director of Structured Investments Product Management at Raymond James. Ben, thank you again for your time today. It was great speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can find more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe. For what it's worth, I'll see you next time. All opinions and information, including any price references or market forecasts, correspond to the recording date listed in this episode's description. Any performance figures noted do not include fees or charges, which would reduce an investor's returns. The information contained in this podcast is not research, nor does it constitute the provision of any investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or recommendations to the listener. Raymond James and its financial advisors do not provide tax or legal advice, and you should discuss any tax or legal matters with the appropriate professional. Past performance is not an indication of future results. There is no assurance any investment strategy will be successful. Investing involves risk, and investors may incur a profit or a loss. Investment products are not deposits, not FDIC and CUA insured, not insured by any government agency, not bank guaranteed, subject to risk and may lose value. Copyright 2020 Raymond James and Associates Inc. Member New York Stock Exchange, SIPC. Copyright 2020 Raymond James Financial Services Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC. Raymond James and Associates Inc. and Raymond James Financial Services Inc. are affiliates of Raymond James Bank. Options involve unique risks tax consequences, and commission charges, and are not suitable for all investors. When appropriate, options should comprise a modest portion of an investor's portfolio. No statement within this document should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell a security or to provide investment advice. Prior to making any options transactions, investors must receive a copy of the options disclosure document, which may be obtained from your financial advisor.
A securities-based line of credit, SBLC, may not be suitable for all clients. The proceeds from an SBLC cannot be A, used to purchase or carry securities, B, deposited into a Raymond James investment or trust account, C, used to purchase any product issued or brokered through an affiliate of Raymond James, including insurance, or D, otherwise used for the benefit of or transferred to an affiliate of Raymond James. Raymond James Bank does not accept RJF stock or any securities issued by affiliates of Raymond James Financial as pledged securities towards an SBLC. Borrowing on securities-based lending products and using securities as collateral may involve a high degree of risk, including unintended tax consequences and the possible need to sell your holdings, which may lead to a significant impact on long-term investment goals. Market conditions can magnify any potential for loss. If the market turns against the client, he or she may be required to quickly deposit additional securities and or cash in the account or accounts or pay down the loan to avoid liquidation. The securities in the pledged account may be sold to meet the collateral call, and the firm can sell the client's securities without contacting them. A client is not entitled to choose which securities or other assets in his or her account are liquidated or sold to meet a collateral call. The firm can increase its maintenance requirements at any time and is not required to provide a client advance written notice. A client is not entitled to an extension of time on a collateral call. Increased interest rates could also affect SOFA rates or any successor rate thereto that applied to your SBLC, causing the cost of the credit line to increase significantly. The interest rates charged are determined by the market value of pledged assets and the net value of the client's non-pledged capital access account. Securities-based line of credit provided by Raymond James Bank, Raymond James & Associates, Inc., and Raymond James Financial Services, Inc. are all affiliated with Raymond James Bank, member FDIC. For additional information on the inherent risks and potential benefits associated with margin accounts, please contact your financial advisor or visit the Securities and Exchange Commission website at sec.gov slash investor slash pubs slash margin.htm. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. The transaction costs may be significant in multi-leg option strategies, collars, as they involve multiple commission charges.